My name is Rose Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, a show that's recorded on Indigenous land that was stolen, never ceded and always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast. Hope you know that by now and you've tuned into the right podcast. Um, we're talking about politics. We're talking about history today, actually, and we talk about theory. And we talk about all of these things with people who are activists, who are actual participants in the, in the struggle. Uh, as much as uh, we um, enjoy the contributions of some academics, we also are a podcast that's proudly on the side of activists and people who are engaged in um, struggle and our guest today is very much one of those people. We're also asking people to help support the show. If you enjoy this episode, one thing that really can help is just to um, share the episode on your social media or even send the episode to a friend or a co-worker or somebody, a family member even, uh, who might enjoy the show um, and tell them why you think they would enjoy this episode or any of the previous ones that you might have heard and enjoyed as well. And if you don't know, we have a back catalogue now of about 26, 27 uh, episodes of this podcast. If you haven't listened to them, um, you may have a bit more time to do that at the moment. So check that out, um, Red Flag Radio, the whole history of the show. And we also have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast, which we're really um, – pleased to have a number of people supporting us to put out this podcast and we really appreciate it. It's really been a great boost to us in the last couple of weeks that a lot more people are deciding to donate a few dollars a month. I will just say to people, Patreon operates um, on US dollars. Somebody has told me to point this out because obviously the exchange rate is not great for your Australian dollar, but just bear that in mind because the amount will come out as US dollars which is really great for us, but it may be a surprise to you. So um, just being full disclosure on that, Patreon. Uh, but yeah, we really appreciate it. And even a couple of dollars a month makes a big difference. So this episode um, we have for the first time on the podcast, I'm very excited about it. I'm sure Liam is too. We have Mick Armstrong. Yep. Mick, uh, who is a veteran socialist activist, became involved in politics um, in the 1960s in the anti-Vietnam War movement. He's written a bunch of different books that you can uh, look up. And do you know where you can find the books, Liam? At the Red Flag Bookshop. In the Red Flag Bookshop, correct. Yes, in the Red Flag Bookshop. Um, Shop.redflag.org.au is the direct place to find that. It should be on the front of the website soon, but there's a lot going on. So, But, uh, yeah, I looked today in a couple of the books. Mick's book on the Labour Party, a Marxist analysis, is on the Red Flag Bookshop and um, from Little Things, Big Things Grow, which is a really great introduction to why we think building socialist organisations is so important and a bunch of historical examples in there as well that I think are worth reading at the moment. So find those and you can also find your Red Flag subscription on the Red Flag website if you haven't already got one. So today we're recording uh, in the evening of um, Tuesday the 7th of April. We're talking about stuff that's happening at the moment. It might have changed by the time you listen to this, um, just a caveat. And um, we really appreciate you being with us. 
But what we're talking about today is a piece of history that I think may be useful in drawing out some lessons for today in the current pandemic. And what we're talking about with Mick, who's been doing some research into this uh, in the last couple of weeks, is the period uh, and the pandemic that was known as the Spanish flu. So we'll start with a bit of an introduction into what the Spanish flu sort of was and why it was called this. Um, and there's um, some interesting things to just say about that to start with. So let's start with that, Mick. Uh, the name of the Spanish flu, sort of when did it all start and what was the actual origin? Well, it wasn't the Spanish flu. Um, the reason it got that name was that Spain wasn't involved in the First World War, whereas it was having a massive impact uh, on the Allied uh, side and on the German side of the war, but they covered it up because they thought it was bad for morale for the war to get out. Spain was neutral uh, and it did have a big impact there and it was massively covered in the Spanish press and it uh, influenced the, well, it impacted the Spanish monarchy. But the origins are very much in dispute where it comes from. Some people say it came from China. Some people say it started in Kansas in the US. Myself, I'm inclined to think that it started uh, in about 1915 or 1916 as, uh, as a flu virus in the, and reports of it then in the Aldershot Barracks in Britain and at, at Tarpals, um, the major concentration point for British and, um, and, and the colonial troops in, in, in France on the continent. And Atapals, I think, is the prime sort of area for it because it was something like 200,000 to 400,000 troops a day going through it, this congregation point. And, but it was also a major area for uh, breeding chooks and pigs uh, to feed the troops. And, you know, so the, the whole guess is, I think, that it went over from the animals into the troops. And then it could spread out because they were, then took it to the front and then uh, troops going back home on leave or, or wounded and so on brought it all over the world. Mm. So what? So when did it really start to become an issue that governments felt like they needed to respond to and what were some of the initial responses um, to the pandemic? Well, it, it went in three ways in, in Europe. Um, Firstly, in about May 1918, uh, then a more serious wave in September, October 1918, then a final wave uh, early in 1919. Um, it was particularly bad on the German and Austrian side of the war um, uh, that, and there was major battles in 1918 um, where the Germans went on the offensive. They had a great superiority of forces and they had every chance of winning the war. Uh, but there's the evidence points now, recent evidence, that the pandemic was very bad and really undermined German troops' number, and particularly in the Austrian army. Some people think hundreds of thousands of Austrian troops succumbed to it. The civilian toll in Germany in 1918 alone was 400,000 civilians died in Germany. So there's an argument to be made that that had played some role in changing the course of war, and then in turn, of course, the German defeat uh, help precipitate the revolution in Germany. Yeah. So were governments or were the officers in the army, the leaders of the army at this point, concerned to try to do anything about it or did they just not really know what was happening? People just were getting this flu and dying and they just sort of carried on through it or did people try to 
you know, isolate um, and use some of the methods that we're seeing today to try to stop the spread anywhere? Well, troops at the front in massively unhygienic conditions, bodies piled up everywhere. There's no way you could isolate them. The only way to isolate them was to vacuum everybody, evacuate everybody from the fighting and stop fighting uh, and that. So by and large, they did nothing. Uh, you know, that they and to some of the things they did do is sent uh, sick troops home. Well, sending sick troops home or away from the front line just spread it everywhere. The main thing they did was just cover it up. Yeah. So internationally, I mean, you've been looking at some of the implications of this in terms of uh, political resistance um, and movements uh, that organised around sort of responding to this pandemic and the people that were dying and the lack of care from all the authorities, which all seems very familiar today. But you um, talked about implications against kind of British imperialism in India, in Ireland. What were some of the things that were happening there then in response to this? Well, in country after country in the British Empire, you know, returning troops uh, brought the virus back. And I'll get on later on to Australia where that was definitely the case. It was delayed here because we're further away. India was the worst affected country in the world. The death toll in India from the flu is estimated between 80, 18 and 21 million mm. and that. So massive numbers out of a total. There's all sorts of estimates of the overall death toll, but a minimum figure I think is 50 to 60 million. Uh, more commonly said 100 million, but some recent sources say over 100 million. You'll never really know. Um, but what's often left out is that most of the forces fighting on the British side in the war were colonial troops, so huge numbers of South African, blacks, um, Indians, people from all over the colonial empire. This was brought back to India and actually played a decisive role there politically because in the health system in Britain might have been appalling and was appalling, but in, in, in the Raj, in India, the only health system was for the whites uh, and the local population was left to die in their millions, million after million. And this played an important role, important role in undermining the legitimacy of British rule um, and uh, laying a basis for the subsequent independence movement in India. Mm. Uh, like the British authorities, the Raj, the, the, the local administrators basically didn't go back into the cities. They stayed in the high country uh, where there was their t traditional holiday houses. They just were seen to have left the uh, Indian population to die and the only people that really mobilised to do anything were various independence activists who set up voluntary units to try to treat people by food and, and that. They were obviously overwhelmed, but they were at least seen to do something to establish their legitimacy and massively undermine the authority of the Raj and that. Mm. Um, I can go and on to talk about other yeah. countries. Yeah, talk about Ireland as well because I think that's an interesting one. I mean, all of this history is very much... Um covered over or not not really been mm. talked about has it yeah that's that's very much the case well in ireland it's brought back by probably returning troops or people just going backwards and forwards from you know in england and ireland going backwards and forwards it's quite devastating there over twenty thousand people at least die um but it occurs in ireland in a period of 1918 of tremendous turmoil uh, huge waves of strikes are sweeping the country uh, because of uh, 
rising food prices, about inflation is about 20%. But as well, politically, the independence movement, the Republican movement, the fight against British rule is taking off. In particular, in 1918, the British were attempting to bring in conscription in Ireland uh, to fight in the war effort, and there was an incredible mass movement uh, opposing conscription. And then the British, to crack down on that movement, arrested the leadership of the anti-conscription movement and, and trained them and interned them because supposedly they were involved in a German plot to help the Germans invade Ireland and undermine Britain uh, and that. And so a whole lot of the leadership are being interned both in Ireland itself but also in British prisons at a time the epidemic is taking off. So, so they're very much then huge movement in support of them. They're seen as martyrs. You know, the British are going to kill them in British, British prisons because of the flu epidemic and so on. And there's huge demonstrations. Uh, one of the, when, when the first of the um, Sinn Féin Republican leaders dies in prison, uh, Richard Coleman died from the flu. Uh, there's mass demonstrations uh, at his funeral and so on. Um, I mean, mass activities, the British didn't try to ban them because mm. of the the flu and that. So the funerals and that, both for prisoners who died, and there was only really two prisoners that died, him um, and, but other act, Sinn Féin activists who died in the course of 1918, the, the funerals became a major uh, point of mass mobilisation and protests mm. and that. Um, but as well, in the course of 1918, there were elections in Ireland, well, in Britain as whole. And where Sinn Féin, the Republicans, swept the uh, elections. But a large number of the newly elected MPs were in, themselves in turn, uh, there was about 50 or so of them, uh, of the new MPs in, in turn by the British, you know, had been in prison, you know, they were elected from prison. And one of them dies. Um, a guy called Pierce uh, Akan uh, dies from the influenza. And that becomes, you know, a central focus for outrage and mass mobilisations and so on in Ireland. And the lack of, you know, for the civilian population, the outer breakdown, like, like the British health system in England itself was bad enough, but it, in the colonies in Ireland, it's nowhere near as effective, nowhere near as good. Um, you know, the health system breaks down uh, and this further leads, leads to discrediting uh, British rule. So it's not a decisive turning point for the Irish struggle, but quite clearly uh, the extent that the British uh, authorities and British rule had any legitimacy in Ireland, uh, the, the, what, its failure to do anything serious to prevent the pandemic spreading uh, you know, further undermines its legitimacy and, and lays the base for mm. future struggles and, uh, through the period mm. and, and the outbreak of armed resistance in the following year. So if we move to um, Australia now, how, so that you said it, it got to Australia later on, um, presumably through the same route of troops coming back from the war and bringing it with them. Um, so that was the context of the arrival. So it was obviously a, it was a sea-bound arrival and there was some attempts, I think, to at that point um, confine troops who were bringing the flu back with them to keep officers locked up in quarantine and so on. But that clearly wasn't very effective because people just 
lied about their symptoms and people just left. And so it eventually did sort of spread into the population um, at large. So what were some of the first things that happened in Australia when people realised that this had actually sort of taken hold here as well? Well, as you said, you know, there was talk of quarantining and to some extent it happened, but it was very lax and it broke down and and so, you know, the, the troops return and they go back to get the train on back to some country town or whatever and, you know, as soon as they arrive, you know, the virus just spreads uh, and that. Um, but gradually more and more restrictions are imposed here in a very uncoordinated way and, and it's... State governments are imposing most of the restrictions, you know, and doing it in a very hot way and, you know, banning movements. Well, West Australia's done it again at the moment, mm. but, you know, states uh, stopping people moving from state to state. Um, but it, but it's important, again, it's a bit like Ireland, to talk of the social context in Australia in um, 1919 when, when it becomes the main uh, impact of the virus here. 1919 has a huge level of industrial struggle. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the frustrations, the, the built-up tensions from the war, um, which had exploded in 1916 and 1917, you know, keep going and, and, uh, and go further. Um, inflation is out of control. Workers' wages have been severely cut. Uh, and so people uh, are engaging in very aggressive strikes. In particular, there's a major strike uh, by seafarers and that, who were then an important part of the working class, uh, one of the biggest unions in the country at the time, uh, and they go on strike. It's not initially inspired or provoked by the pandemic, but, uh, you know, it's mainly for better conditions uh, and, and higher pay. But as the pandemic hits, the, the, the seafarers um, up their demands for better holiday pay, sickness pay, health insurance and so on. And also to be paid while the ships are in quarantine and all that, so it becomes a major point of con uh, contention uh, in the strike. But also means that the bargaining position of workers are very strong, uh, and that's one of the things that people may not understand. Actually, the, the virus means that workers in key industry had enormous uh, industrial mm -hmm. power and put them in a stronger position, even though people were dying, uh, and that and, and the situation was inflamed. And the seamen uh, have a smashing victory. Uh, they defied arbitration, basically said arbitration can you know, go for a running jump, and explicitly the leaders of the union, the, a newly elected leadership who went on then to be, play a prominent role in the formation of the Communist Party, basically said we're out to destroy the arbitration system, uh, which had held down workers and all that, and, and to engage in direct action uh, to win the strike. Um, and... In particular, the strike has a major impact here in Melbourne uh, because uh, coal, which was central to so many industries at the time, had to be imported from New South Wales and the main method of importing was on ship uh, from Newcastle and so on. Uh, that wasn't coming in. So a whole section of industry, uh, lights went out in Melbourne, there were food riots uh, and that in Melbourne it has a devastating impact on the economy. Uh, which, um, you know, provokes more discontent, hostilities and so on. And, um, you know, and, and the seamen eventually uh, have a slashing victory. They didn't, they got probably 90% of their demands, major pay rises uh, and that 
um, you know, more health provisions and so on. Uh, they didn't win ins insurance, health sickness insurance, but they pretty much won everything else. Um, and that so, so that was one of the most important developments. Um, but there were two other major battles as well, which I can go on to if you yeah. want. Mm. Yeah, carry on. Um, yeah. Well, the other thing that had gone on um, in 1917 had been a, a mass strike. Some people could call it a general strike, but uh, which wasn't victorious. Um, and on the waterfront, the waterside workers. Uh, were defeated and had to go back and uh, they were defeated partially because the government had enrolled a large number of scabs in a lot of the ports. And so over the subsequent couple of years, there was a determined attempt by the workers uh, to force the scabs out of the, from the waterfront and regain employment. And at Fremantle, the, the wharves in Fremantle, uh, the virus brings it to a head because uh, quarantine restrictions have been imposed and ships were meant to be stand out, you know, for, for the period of the quarantine before they could unload their cargoes. But then, in defiance of and breaking the quarantine, the state premier ordered the ship to be brought into port and unloaded. The, um, the union uh, carrying the wharfies objected to this. And so, but so they used, well, they attempted to use the scabs to unload the ship. And the state premier himself sails up the river uh, with scabs to, you know, to, to bring them in to un unload. Uh, <laughs> and then, and in response to that, there's a major mobilisation, not just by the um, uh, the wharfies, but by other workers in Fremantle, um, you know, their families, women and children uh, gather at the walls in a huge picket line to confront the scabs uh, and that, who were seen to be, you know, not just that they were scabs and they're scabbing on the workers, but they were seen to be bringing in the virus uh, and that, allowing the virus to be brought in. Huge rioting uh, and that fierce uh, confrontation. The police are brought in. One worker, Edwards, is killed. He's a martyr. Uh, but the workers won. Uh, and they're aided by the fact that returned soldiers uh, and one of the ships standing off, uh, they were sent signals to the workers saying, if you need us, we've got guns, we can come to your aid as well, if you need us. Um, oh. And that. And then after, after Edwards is killed, uh, the workers basically take over uh, Fremantle. The police free the area. And for days afterwards, sort of essentially a workers' militia is running uh, Fremantle. And, um, and a decisive victory comes out of it. The scabs are cleared off. In the aftermath, the scabs are cleared off the war. Uh, the wharfs are fully reunionised again. So that's May 1919. That's the one that's, that's another Bloody Sunday in the history of Bloody Sundays in the workers' movement. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then so the third one is the Townsville. Is that right? Well, Townsville was a red centre. Um, it was an area where major meatworks in Townsville, and there was also a port um, and, and that, and, 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 and impacted by the seafarers' strike as well. And so supplies are running uh, short. Uh, but also very radical centre in those days uh, where after the outlawing of the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, a lot of their 
people had fled from New South Wales up into the meat workers, meatworks around Townsville and so on. Uh, and that and there was big, and, and they used to go to work with t-shirts emblazoned with revolution on. You know, this this is this is what they want to work. Uh, and that there'd been a lot of opposition to the war, uh, big strikes there, uh, the, you know, and a very high-level rank-file organisation. Big strike uh, starts in 1918. The bosses are going on the offensive now. They think the war ending, they can try to suppress the uh, workers' movement and that. So, uh, and then um, the strike leaders are arrested, prison. Uh, the workers march on the uh, prison uh, and to demand, or the police station demanding the release of the strike leaders. The police open fire. Uh, the workers then smash their way into and seize guns in the various hardware stores and arms stores. They take over the town so and defeat the police. So the workers, armed workers are in control of the town. And, um, and reinforcements are brought in. And it's in this context that the virus hits uh, and adds, adds to the whole turmoil. Um, police reinforcements eventually sent in by the state Labor government uh, and that, but a lot of them succumb to the virus uh, and that. Um, uh, there's, there's this being impacted by the seafarers' strike, there's uh, lack of food supplies, so and that. And so there's um, bread riots break out, um, you know, because... Yeah, everything's being undermined and all that. So, whole period of social turmoil, uh, which takes a whole lengthy period for the, the authorities to regain to control, and the virus adds to that. You know, as I said, undermining the forces of the state. And this is what actually, if you generalise out, this seems to be a pattern in country after country that uh, the police, you know, the, the people. And it's a bit like this time around. Like it's, you've seen figures in some countries, about ten percent of the people in Boston impacted by the virus or health workers and so on. Well, disproportionately with the, uh, the so-called Spanish flu, it's uh, police, uh, health workers, uh, people, you know, dealing with the public that are disproportionately affected. And that leads to, you know, undermining of the forces of the state in, lo in lots of places uh, and that, you know, it's notable in, in, in Townsville, but it's a worldwide pattern. Mm. Mm. So obviously in this period, I mean, the Russian Revolution has happened in 1917 and the Bolsheviks are trying to consolidate the revolution in, in this time. Um, but a lot of the international um, ruling class were trying to imply that the Spanish flu was actually something to do with the Bolsheviks and like trying to undermine capitalism through this spreading of this virus and all that kind of stuff. What were the... Like, what was the situation in Russia with this and what were the connections and some of the propaganda that was going on around that at the time? Well, you know, the, the, the right-wing forces in society were using, like, well, you know, there's two viruses sweeping the world, you know. We've got the Bolshevik threat, uh, which has to be smashed, and we've got this virus. That was sort of a line uh, coming through. And, like, in country after country, you know, this this was the ideological if you like approach and that um, like the, the thing was in Russia by the time of 1918 1919 um, in Russia itself um, the civil war had broken out as the right-wing forces 
uh, and that, and obviously the virus had an impact on that. But it's not as though the the Bolsheviks obviously were verbally, you know, trying to encourage the struggles internationally, but they were tied up to a very large extent, um, you know, combating the virus itself at home and, and fighting, or more so tied up with fighting a murder civil war and that. But, like, the, so the main impact of the revolution was, in, was the moral effect, inspiring workers everywhere to rise up. And in that context, you know, there's turmoil in country after country you know so you've got a revolution in germany um and that um like in spain you know we refer to spain in terms of the name of the virus but like in 1918 when it hits in spain spain was in turmoil there'd been a series of general strikes uh the inflation was out of control poverty and so on and the virus so in country after country the virus like at one level it adds a, a disconcerting effect and that, but it adds to the turmoil in society. It throws everything up and down. It means things can go all sorts of directions out of it. Sometimes it radicalises things. Like there's a general strike in Seattle in 1919, just three months after the city has been ravaged by the virus. And, you know, comment, a number of commentators there refer to that the virus just added to the turmoil and discontent in society and actually helped impel uh, the workers to come out. In other places... It has a, a, a quite contrary effect. In South Africa, for example, South Africa was one of the worst hit countries from it. It was brought back by black troops uh, who'd served in, were serving in for the British in Europe. Now, these black troops, worth noting, there's a large number of them serving, but they weren't given guns, uh, unlike other colonial troops. You know, they were meant to doing stuff behind the line, digging trenches and all that sort of stuff, not given guns. But they come back, the disease spread, and this... It's a, it just sweeps through uh, the black population in South Africa. It doesn't, from what I can see, so much inspire struggle, but, but a sense that the, the end of the world is coming. So a huge uh, emergence in South Africa of millinery and religious cults of sort of combining religious uh, Christian, Christian ideas uh, with traditional Zulu beliefs and so on. So the virus just adds to a sense that the world's coming and then there's, there's incredible turmoil. Mm. I mean, to be honest, you could think that could, if the, the virus becomes absolutely devastating here, you could well believe a similar sort of currents can emerge here too. Mm. And, and, you know, not so much in Australia, yeah, yeah. but in parts of the world, where it just seems to be bringing society to, you know, an end. The way of the revolution has if you were to draw out some of the lessons from this period, the Spanish flu pandemic and the resistance um, that in some cases it inspired, what do you reckon some of the lessons are? Not that we can predict. Obviously, things are changing very rapidly and, you know, there's a whole lot of different directions things could go in from here. But what are some of the lessons that stand out from this period? Well, if you like the similarities of of today are one, the authorities try to cover it up uh, and they did it, you know, for their own reasons. They're not concerned primarily about public health. They're concerned about their own power uh, and that. And it wasn't so much immediately this time in the, in the Spanish flu so much the immediate profit motive, but the war effort, imperial, you know, the, the, you know, you couldn't talk about the virus or do anything about it particularly because to do so would, you know, unsettle the public uh, and that and lead to a falling off of the war. So we've got to cover it up. 
we've seen this this time again with China covering up in the initial phase, which could have made a you know significant difference, uh, and that. So this cover up, but then of course you know the general um, lack of uh, health provisions and uh, in society, and you know it's bad enough today, but of course in 1918, 1919, the health system was even worse. Uh, and that so it has a devastating impact. You know, the ruling class is not prepared to spend the money uh, and the resources and put into saving lives and, and protecting uh, protecting ordinary people. They're much more concerned uh, to you know look after the health. You know, like in and it's, that's reflected at every level. And that just absolute penny pinching. Like in Ireland, essentially the doctors. In, in, in the course of it, essentially threatened to go on strike because they're refusing to pay them any significant amount. You know, their, their workloads massively gone up, and that, and, and they wouldn't, and they have to go out off everywhere. They've got huge expenses, and, and the British authorities are refusing to give them any money. And, and that, so this, you know, it's all the bottom line uh, drives it. Um, and you know, so you know, the rich and powerful, well, or in the case of India, well. The British administration, you know, leaves the mass of the population to die out uh, and all that. And the only way that any measures are taken uh, to actually aid people is because people fight and demand them. And that, uh, and that's going to be a key thing today as well. That, um, you know, and, and the tragedy today, of course, in Australia here is you've got the unions and the Labor Party bending over backwards to make concessions to Liberals and Morrison and that instead of demanding our rights both in terms mm. of our health and ensuring the bosses don't devastate our wages and conditions in the aftermath. Mm. And then in terms of what that fight might look like too, I mean, one of the things you said, Mick, that caught my ear was, you know, uh, that the the seafarers, that the pandemic sort of heightened their industrial power. And I think when you look at the pandemic, the way it's playing out today, you can see the potential for similar things, that there are certain industries who in the last, you know, three to four weeks have suddenly got much more potential industrial power than they had a month ago. You know, think about people who work in supermarkets or food delivery or people who work in like the internet, like the Telstra, NBN type workers. I mean, their their potential power has just become, you know, magnified multiple times over in the last few weeks. And so, in terms of what the fight might look like, it's, a, it's you know, a question of organisation and politics. You know, the organisation that can actually sort of harness that potential power and wield it uh, and the politics that's prepared to challenge that sort of, um, you know, national interest type politics that we're, all, that we're all being berated with. You know, it's just like the war, just like, you know, we have to cover it up for the war effort. Today, it's the same thing. You know, we're all in together, pull together Australia. You know, Morrison said after he met with Sally McManus that there is no, there's no more workers and bosses in Australia. Just, there's just Australians, you know, so there's a question of politics then of being able to actually challenge that. That's one of the lessons that comes through, I think, clearly from what Mick was just saying, that, you know, we need organisation and we need radical politics. Because where did all those seafarers get that from, Mick? You know, like, that's the thing I think people will be thinking, well, that sounds fantastic, but, like, that couldn't have just sprung out of nothing. That's true. And, I mean, one of the limitations of today is we think um, – the left is nowhere, you know, and particularly the socialist left, the revolutionary left, is nowhere near as strong. Um, like, the, 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 so, for example, the Seafarers Union uh, had been one uh, 
had been under the control of quite right-wing officials at the start of the war that had been pro-war, you know, back the Labor government's pro-war stance and so on, um, and it led to massive sacrificing of conditions of the seafarers and, and like, uh, the seafarers on, um, you know, ship, you know, on, on military ships had a huge casualty rate during the war that sunk by German U-boats and so on. They were incredibly unsafe conditions. Uh, and like on, and, and the amenities on the ship were left to rot during the war because they exempted them from health provisions because they said, if we, if the government imposes the health regulations, all these old ships won't be able to be used and all that. So it's so built up amongst the rank and file level of, um, you know, quite bitterness in that. But then um, out of the anti-conscription campaign and other struggles, the left uh, is growing and, and, and the socialist forces are growing, um, um, both the industrial workers all the world, various socialist groups and so on, they're growing. Um, and that, you know, so it's a combination of increasing rank-and-file organisation, increasing militancy and socialists who win the leadership of the Seafarers' Union. And the, the, on, that, on the back of strong rank and file organisation, um, and then they're determined uh, to win. And so, like to some extent, the virus disrupts things. But in the context of disrupting them in an Australian time of a generally rising level of struggle, uh, a heightened radicalisation, increased uh, hostility to the war, you know, a whole series of factors coming together. And then, as Liam underlined, you know, the workers have got greater industrial power and that. And so, you know, there's a lot of those things are going to have to be rebuilt in terms of the left and that. But it is the case that work, a lot of workers do have power today and they have tremendous moral authority. You know, the, the, the people working in the health sector who are sacrificing their lives and are going to be some of the major casualties from this virus, uh, you know, have got great moral authority and that. So there's a question there. At some point, they can be pushed to the brink as there starts to die in real large numbers. And we've already seen a number of protests and actions by health workers around the world. We've seen big strikes in Italy and so on. Some of those things are going to be built upon. And that but also means we've got to, um, socialists have got to rebuild a fighting left and that because um, how long this crisis goes on, we don't know for sure. But, you know, there's going to be no easy return to so-called normal, actually. This is going to lead to a massive legacy afterwards, mass unemployment, uh, mass disruption in society, uh, and, you know, eventually uh, big struggles in a lot of countries. Hmm. Well, that's a very important note to end on. And just a reminder for people listening that workers organising resistance during the pandemic can be found on Facebook. There's a Facebook page and also a group that people can get into to discuss a bunch of on-the-ground organising that is already happening and that uh, everyone is welcome and encouraged to get involved with through um, that as a means of organising the, the Facebook page. As rank-and-file workers who are members of unions, all of us, but um, who want to push things as much as possible in this time. And as Mick said, you know, in the health sector, people are, are fighting for their own lives as well as the lives of others. And and the experience of the Spanish flu in this pandemic, and I think some of this history is really a good pointer to the fact that, um, you know, these periods can throw up very important political questions, that they can throw people into struggle, and they can make people feel like, you know, uh, is there a future, is there no future? And that idea of thinking 
about it as the end of the world doesn't sound as crazy as actually um, it can feel now that we're in that kind of situation again. So do you want to join a religious cult or do you want to fight for um, a different world? You know, like this is the same questions that we're having to answer for ourselves today. So thank you very much, Mick, um, for being on the podcast. That was a really fascinating um, discussion. And you can read more. There's an article in Red Flag written by Sandra Bloodworth on this topic that I'll put in the uh, show notes. And um, keep listening to Red Flag Radio uh, because we have a world to win.